Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Andrew Quinn, uh, who's a securities and investment consultant to the high net worth individual space. Andrew, welcome. Uh, hello, Alex. So, thank you very much for your time today. I wanted to sort of kick off this conversation with a book that you wrote now almost 15 years ago, which is about investing on Wall Street, a practical guide for Australians. You know, if, if you looked at that writing that book today, how would things change? I think probably what I do today, Alex, is talk more about the macro side of things and the influences in the market because they're just so dominant in the global economy currently. Things like uh, the level of debt and the credit markets and over-the-counter derivatives market as well, those kind of things are major issues for us today more than even in 2004, 2005. So, you know, when you, when you look at the change in, in the market since 2005, there was a really big push for, for active management. It was really the dominant play. You know, what's your view on, on the active space now versus more of the traditional passive style investments that have come through? Actually, it hasn't changed too much. What I did for my book back in 2004, 2005 is, is go back and look at the Dow back about 85 years. And I stripped out inflation out of that and I stripped out dividends. And then I went and looked at every year in those 85 years to see what the actual return of a buy and hold strategy of the Dow was over the long period. And to be perfectly honest with you, I actually wasn't very impressed by it. Um, if you look at at the Dow, less inflation, less dividends, there are periods in there uh, that uh, show up 13 to 18 years of flat to negative returns. And five-year periods of flat to negative returns are actually very common. So I came away with the view that really a buy and hold strategy just really doesn't stack up. It's basically a um, gamble on a country's GDP, if you like. Very simply, you can say if a country's GDP is rising, then the stock market's likely to rise. If the country's GDP is flat or falling, the stock market's likely to be flat or falling. Um, if you look at many of the brokers and people pushing long-term holds of stock indexes, they tend to show these great upward-trending um, types of charts that go up for years. But what they fail to say is, well, actually, that includes inflation. Sometimes it includes compounded dividends. Um, and uh, and really, it's it's not particularly valid in terms of to make a real profit, you have to beat inflation and ta- after taxes as well. You know, so so my view on buy and hold is that it's just a gamble on GDP. At the end of the day, you come away with the view that the stock market is actually a lot messier and you need to um, pick the out or try and outperform by picking stocks accurately rather than just holding the index. The Japanese have a good saying, to take no action is also an action, and that's how I see passive investment. 
So it's, it's a really interesting conversation because if you look at a lot of the industry funds and a lot of advisors too, that you know their their mandates often is just stay the course. You know, it, this is a long term investment, stay the course. And then when I'm listening to you, I'm starting to question. Well, hold on. Uh, if you just stay the course, you could end up with 10, 13 year period where you're just flatlining um, and just meeting inflation. Is that, Easily, and yeah. also, also if you're flatlining through that period, you're still taking a lot of risk to get a, a flat or negative re- return through that period. I think it's a bit like, you know, for a bit like a situation where if an advisor doesn't know what to do, he sort of says, well, we'll be fine for the long term, you know, assuming that eventually inflation will make things look better than they actually are. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's given them a good win of, of late, particularly as interest rates have continued to to decrease over the last you know fifteen twenty years. It's, well, it's been a, longer than that, but particularly last fifteen years, that tailwind from lower interest rates has has made uh, equities just a no brainer for for a large number of people. You, you didn't need much uh, in the way of sort of active selection at at all, or even stock picking. It it seemed as though is is that correct? Well, yes, to an extent, although it depends very much on which market you pick. Obviously, the uh, Fed is strongly behind the US markets. But if you look at, say, the Japanese market and the Bank of Japan being behind that market, that's uh, had a much poorer performance. It's a sort of a rangy type market for decades now. So it depends on, you know, uh, the well-chosen example, if you like. I I think that... um, I think that also your point about uh, it being easier uh, to make money on the market by just buy and hold because um, interest rates have been coming down has been true, but I think also that game is coming to an end now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting, you know, in terms in terms of the game, right? And we use that in quotations. If you if you look to a lot of the the commentary that comes out of even some of the big pension funds and and just more broader concerns with lower and lower interest rates potentially for negative rates, you know, there's this fear that we're becoming like Japan, right? So mm-hmm. the fear is becoming like Japan, but then if you look at the Japanese stock market, as you mentioned, it hasn't really performed so well. So isn't that what we're supposed to be then taking into consideration? This lower returns in in equity equity returns. I think the way I see that, it sort of entails a little bit of understanding of credit-induced booms. And really, over the last, say, 30 years, we've essentially had a credit-induced boom in that in that, if you and I had to buy a house and we didn't have credit available to us, obviously, we'd have to save up and the demand or our ability to buy a house would be a lot less. Now, you run that through an entire economy, suddenly everybody can afford a house and they go and go into debt, buy a house, push the price of houses up. Now, in order to extend that as far as possible, central banks have been obviously pushing interest rates down and down, but they're now close to zero, zero thinking about going negative on interest rates. So that end of the game is sort of ending in terms of just how far you can push credit expansion, which you can think of as just how far you can push demand. I think also if you um, take into account um, that that end is ending with on the interest rate side, I think you on the on the on the debt side or the amount of credit in the system that's coming to an end. If you look at say the macro or global debt to GDP, you're running at about 322 to 226 percent debt to GDP in the world at the moment. But if you take that down and look at say Australian household debt to household wealth, for example or household income, 
that's at 120 percent at the moment now that's the second highest debt to household income in the world and obviously the ability to keep pushing that higher is coming to a, a limit so or has an end so um, historically you've got uh, a situation where you can't push too much more debt into the system and you can't drop interest rates too much more. And that's what central banks all over the world are now facing. And obviously, historically, there hasn't been easy way out of credit-induced booms. In fact, there's only generally been historically two ways out. One way is to voluntarily kill the boom by lifting interest rates. The other way is just keep pushing the boom until it eventually destroys your economy. You know, you either blow up the uh, currency market or the bond market. And um, that's why we're sort of seeing so many problems in the global economy at the, mo at the moment, um, because you've, that game is coming to an end. You've um, really, the people say, well, it's a virus. It's not really. This was set up and it moving in this direction long before the virus was ever heard about. It's interesting, you know, that we did start to see some very weak um, economic data prior to the virus, um, you know, and we saw also some very high valuations, um, you know, in Australia and also in the US in terms of equity prices. Uh, you know, we had a, a quick run that that pulled the market down almost thirty percent, but we seem to be then back to, to where we started back in yeah. sort of February. Now, you know, you know, do you have views on on what potentially driving that? Is this is just this constant buy the dip mentality that's there, or is it just people trying to front run the Fed? Well, I think very often the Australian market follows on about a sixty percent probability basis on any day uh, the uh, U.S. market. So I think if we take what's leading the U.S. market, I think if you look at the Fed's balance sheet from sort of the that pullback and then the move back up. I mean, they expanded their balance sheet by about $3 trillion, which is a massive amount of money. And really, the US there is just getting ahead of the Fed and the Fed started to buy ETFs, threatened to buy more bonds, including junk bonds. And that uh, is a market that many people think, well, I've just got to be in there and let the Fed buy uh, and push the market higher. You know, And you can see the, the market heading up. I mean, the Nasdaq's more, almost back to record highs. I wouldn't be surprised if it goes into some sort of blow-off high here. It, 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 but it feels crazy, you know, like for people that you know, go through university and they learn traditional uh, finance and they learn about CAPMs and modern portfolio theory and discounted cash flows and fundamental value and even value investing as a, as a style and strategy – these people, you know, such as myself, I think feel a little bit uh, confused or deluded by by finance. You know, <laughs> is that your well, view I, as well? I think it is. I think your your point's absolutely valid. It's a very strange market. I mean, if someone had told me that that the world would be buying sort of fourteen to seventeen trillion dollars worth of negative yielding bonds ten years ago, I would have gone, "Are you crazy?" Mm. And yet, that's exactly what's happened. You know. And um, and likewise, the stock market's acting very strangely. I mean, it has a lot to do with fears as well. And if you're nervous about the bond market, I mean, really, you might say the stock market's in the bubble. But if you really look at it, the area that's in a huge bubble is the bond market. And um, so if you don't want to go into the bond market, you don't want to go particularly into, into illiquid housing markets. Um, you tend to, and you don't want to stay fully into cash, which is just essentially currency play anyway. 
um, you're then you're then faced with the choice of what other big end liquid assets that are likely still to be there at the end of this are still around, and that's why you've seen move, people move into the big end tech space in the Nasdaq. You know the Googles and things of the world, Amazons and Googles. You know these companies are cashed up, growing companies in a sort of flat economic environment. So to an extent, it's logical. I think. Um, the other thing I used to say advising, you know, I used to advise about 200 um, brokers at Patterson's and you'd go into these uh, bizarre markets and you'd say sort of stop trying to figure it out on an intellectual basis and just go back and do the technicals on it. In other words, adjust your position sizing and, and if the market's going up, buy it and hold it until it starts to turn and then get the hell out of Dodge, you know. Is, is this sort of like a momentum trade style strategy? Is that is that what you're catching? Effectively, yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, if you just go on the fundamentals and the market runs to record highs, you have missed out on a fair bit. But what I would say as a warning with that is that you must look at your position sizing. Mm -hmm. In other words, if you're playing a market that you don't really understand and it's a sort of based on a, a situation where the, if the Fed stops spending so much money, then, um, you know, it could start to come down. Or if there's a second wave of COVID in the USA between October and Christmas, um, you want to be watching your position sizing and, and exposure very carefully. So I, I think humans tend to go in for a all or nothing. You either spear the kangaroo or you don't spear the kangaroo. You either buy the stock or you don't buy the spot stock. In the stock market, you don't need to do that. The decision should be more um, more regard to how much of the stock do you buy. Now, that could be nothing to it. could be, you know, $10,000, $20,000, $100,000, whatever you're comfortable with. I think a how much decision is better than a yes or no decision in these kind of markets. Look, it's, a, it's an incredible thing where you've got a situation where you're trying to tell people to sort of put your psychology to one side and then, you know, almost follow the flows to another. And that's sort of where I almost you know, built out this whole conversation, this podcast series, which was around the, the word market narratives, you know, in mm. terms of can you really fight the narrative that's being pushed, whether it's, you know, the Fed jaw burning, whether it's the treasurer in Australia trying to jaw burn. You know, how do you invest in this sort of market? You just need to get in front of where these flows are, are moving. Um, I mean, how important uh, is news? I, I, think the, I think the other thing to do, Alex, is really look at the the um, risk you're taking and how it's going to affect your lifestyle. I mean, I had a client who just recently inherited $2 million. And he said, look, I think the market's going to go up. I want to go into the market, you know. And I said, okay, let's work out what, how high do you think the market can go? And this guy's a former broker, and he said, I reckon he can go up 30% from here, which actually is quite an accurate assessment for the time he said it. Um, and I said, okay, and how much will that make you? And he, he listed off the figures, and I said, you'll pay sort of 25 to 50% tax on that. And he said, yeah. And I said, how will it change your lifestyle? And he said, well, to be honest, Andrew, it won't really change my lifestyle at all. And I said, okay, what if you're wrong and the market goes down? Where can it go down? And he said, well, I think it could go down maybe 50%, 60%. And I said, okay, if that happens, what, what happens to your lifestyle? And he said, well, I'd be battling to still afford the repayments on my house. I'd have to, you know, he listed off about three or four things that would be on the downside for his lifestyle if he got the bad result. And I said, you just answered your own question, you know. 
you, you don't have to, no one forces you to play the market if you don't think the risk reward is there. So either play it with less money, or or play it when you're comfortable with where you think it's going to go, it's, rather than yeah, taking a large bet on it. It's a, it's an incredible sort of piece because I think that's the best way to frame it in terms of what this it's really an asymmetric payoff at the moment where yeah. the, where the asymmetric payoff is on the downside. You know, you make thirty percent potential on the upside, but you could be down fifty. Um, on the on the downside, and so as you start to compartmentalize that in your mind, you know, does it does it change your lifestyle? I think that is a very interesting question that that all advisors should be asking their clients. Yeah, I think um, when you when you deal with high net worth individuals, I think you quickly realize these guys don't necessarily want you to make a huge amount of money for them, but they certainly want you not to lose for them what they've already got. If you know what I mean, you know. So that's what they're coming, you know, sure they want to make money, but it's not as critical when you've already got it. What is critical is not to lose it. And really, when you understand the credit markets and the history of trying to get out of those markets, when you understand the $640 trillion OTC derivatives market, um, structurally, the world is in massive risk, a lot of risk. A lot of people don't realise how much risk there is. So, you know, you need to be conservative with that kind of structural risk. Um, behind, behind you. How do you, how do you then communicate the risk that sits behind these portfolios? Because see, the problem with risk is that it's you know historically just quoted as a volatility number. Um, you know, you look at returns in terms of sharp ratios and so forth. But you know, mm. in all my experience through academia and now current, you know, working in content in the institutional space, these these forms or measures of risk. Fair, you know, are, are very far from the reality, yeah, which is they're, the tail they're very risk. academic risk. Mm. I think you've got to take it back to the person's lifestyle and what risk they're prepared and what they'll lose if things go against them. I think you can ask a client, look, what are the things that absolutely must happen? And they'll say, well, you know, little Johnny must absolutely go to the private school and can't be pulled out. And how long has he got to go in school? Another five years, okay? So you definitely need, you know, 200,000 or whatever it is for that. And you go through all these things with them so that nothing bad can happen to them. And then you try and improve. Um, I, I often go, you know, Sun Tzu said the good fighters of old first put themselves in a position where they can't lose and then wait for an opportunity to defeat their enemy. I tend to look at portfolios like that in people's portfolios. How can we not lose and then then only then after we set up not losing, how do we how do we make gains on the portfolio? So you know if you look at if you look at that as a as a strategy, do you then you know, create a barbell strategy where you've got sort of this really defensive piece of the portfolio and then some, you know, assets that are likely to really pay off quite significantly or do you sort of go with a more balanced portfolio? That's a great question. Actually, I in more and more I've been probably 10 years uh, of thinking that I like the barbell strategy more and more. I just think this, what scares me is clients that, that basically buy the industry speak of, Look, put your million dollars worth of super into the stock market and sit there and shut up, you know, <laughs> and it'll all be fine in 20 years. And that just terrifies me. You know, I've just, I've been through enough booms and busts to see that those people often get really slaughtered. I'd rather, it sounds, sounds almost irresponsible, but I, I don't view 
stocks as good or bad. I think they're good or bad or risky or, or not risky according to what asset allocation you have in them. So, um, you know, if you've got $100,000 and you put 100000 into just BHP, I mean, I'd say that's a pretty risky proposition you've got there, you know, where if you put $2,000 into a small mining company, under the way the industry is set up at the moment, they go, well, that's really risky. You know, that small mining company, I go, no, it's not. You've got 2% of your portfolio in it. And that's the way I tend to look at it. So on the barbell strategy, I actually agree. Um, I like to run a strategy like that where I'm running a lot of cash and then I'm basically specking the hell out of a small amount of the portfolio. And often that will work out better if you're a good stock picker. Mm-hmm. So let, let's let's maybe take it, it, just yeah. do you understand me? It sounds irresponsible, but I I really don't think it is. You know, yeah, no, no I, not I, when you understand structure. Oh no, I, I I totally understand the premise behind it. You know, one one of my own philosophies is around sort of having low risk and then maybe looking at some biotechnology businesses, which is sort of a VC style investment that can go five or ten x quite quickly. And you don't put large amounts; you put a couple of percent in into these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, but how I does think, this- I think in that that case, Alex, particularly if someone has a natural advantage. So if you're if you're dealing with a doctor, and he's very interested in biotechnology. You could you could talk about biotechnology stocks. They tend to have a natural knowledge of them, you know, built up through years of whether it's good or bad. If you're dealing with um, a geologist, you might go the mining way. You know, uh, I think that's probably a good way to go. Let's um let's go back to one of the really big questions that that sort of fits within the traditional asset allocation, and you know, in a lot of advisors do it, the the super fund pension funds do it as well, which is sort of diversification in in quotation and they just throw it to some equities some fixed interest infrastructure real estate um you know alternate credit vc mm-hmm. and then when you look at it you know you look at the last couple of months and how things perform in any down market there's no diversification at all the correlations are moving towards one you know how, yeah, how do you I, think about that well i think first of all in a bad enough bear market everything becomes correlated you know <laughs> Um, almost everything's going down. So the whole premise that you have a diversified market just ends up giving you the market average anyway. I, I think that advisors have been very much pushed in this direction because of, you know, they used to have that advertising campaign, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a bit like nobody ever got fired by for buying Commonwealth Bank and uh, BHP. I think as liabilities have been pushed back towards advisors more they've just become more and more conservative and go okay let's just run this portfolio along the market uh, market sector averages and and run it from there but really what that gives you in australia not so much in america but certainly in australia gives you essentially overweight position in the resources or mining um, materials sector and an overweight position in banks you know, it's not particularly diversified. And you're already not globally diversified because the Australian market makes up about 2% of the global market capitalization anyway. So, so you know, I, I, don't, I don't see that it adds a lot of value, but certainly it's an easy way to get your thoughts clear for an advisor who just wants to, I, I don't really want to say lazy, but <laughs> doesn't want to really take a lot of risk or do a lot of work on a portfolio. 
Well, look, relative performance and peer risk is just a big problem. You know, it, it's a psychological mm. problem that that uh, people need to deal with in in markets. Yeah, you know, they're trying to compete with everyone else. They also don't want to, you know, fall behind the crowd, and so that becomes the easy reason why they they go down these market portfolios and don't shift from from the rest of the group. Mm, exactly. Um, you know, but but if you think about more of these high net worth individuals and how they would like to have their portfolio sorted, you know, what what does that look like typically? You know, when you when you communicate with these people in terms of the portfolio makeup, what, what what's their typical um, makeup look like? I, I think actually uh, the biggest trend you sort of see in the last few years is this move towards. Um, ethical type investing or something that's doing some good for society that's a very strong trend mm-hmm. and um and so I, I saw a lot of that then i tend to um concentrate on as i've mentioned and what the person has an interest in you know if if they're a geologist and you're only doing biotech type things on your barbell strategy for them they just don't have an interest and they tend to drift away with that um, having said that, I think that the whole strategy and structure of the market is very risky at the moment, and I don't particularly like being very strongly overexposed to markets that are very strongly reliant on central bank actions, um, and for that reason, tending to run a lot of cash at the moment and be pretty conservative. And um, you'd probably write down the kind of stocks that you want to own that are good stocks if you do get a turn down again, so the NASDAQ starts to come off from a from a high in the next few months and uh, that you then want to own them, you know, and buy and then. But but I'm I'm in no way aggressive in the market at the moment. Now now that may mean that I'd slightly underperform. I don't really care. I understand the macro risk. I understand that these people want to keep what they've got then don't want to lose it. And I understand it's a little bit like, you know, you've got Cottesloe Beach over here, Perth. Now, if you see a big white pointer cruising off Cottesloe Beach, you decide to not go for a swim and no one congratulates you. Mm-hmm. Everyone just says, well, that's a logical thing to do. Now, at the moment, there's plenty of white pointers in the, wa- in the water. You, you, you know, you don't go for a swim with a white pointer, come out and say, well, I had a great time, it was worth the risk. It simply wasn't, you know. So I tend to look at those kind of things and um, at the moment I'm pretty conservative, pretty high in cash. Would you have the same approach for someone who's in their sort of mid to late 20s? Probably a little bit different. Um, I'd still go with maybe um, stocks that they understand and know. um, So that would, would be similar. I'm very much – there's a, a view that that superannuation-focused money in them in um, is very passive money. I don't believe that at all. In fact, I think that as money gets closer and closer to the – or as a person gets closer and closer to the retirement age, that money is more and more prone to panic. And I think that um, you've already seen these people go through 2008 – lose a lot of money through 2008, then get a nasty shock with a 30% uh, decline uh, recently in the last few months. And um, I think that money could be prone to, uh, to, um, to panicking again. On the younger people's side, I tend to try and go for stocks that are very conservative as well and, and think, okay, what is very likely to still be around in 30 years? 
you know, to start them off. And then we become more sophisticated after we're moving along, after we've got the classic stocks that are likely to still be standing in, in 30 years, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Let, let's and, take, take it back to, to some of the comments that you mentioned at the very start, which is gambling on a country's GDP. Yeah. You know, how, how important is that? You know, you talked about macro factors as being a really big driver to how you think about where to invest. You know, if you look at the the market today, if you're sort of out in space looking down on on the earth, you know what's interesting for you today versus where where there's potential real problems. Uh, I think that um, you're if you look at you know as I did on the Dow back all those times, you just walk away from it going, well, this is just a gamble on on whether the country's GDP goes up or down, and therefore because you can virtually invest in any country these days. You have to pick a country where you think the GDP is going to go up, and that's getting uh, over a very long period. I mean, I mean, people that go, well, look at the Dow's great performance are really going, well, look at the most strong, powerful, best-performing country in the world, and their stock market happened to go up as well. It's like, hello, of course it did, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's, it's not that easy because of the technology that's going to come through in the future to say what is going to be still standing in the future and where you should be and which country is going to be successful and which is not. I mean, there's so much structural risk in the world today that you can make a fairly strong case against China, you can make a strong case against the US as well, you know. Um, and... and um, you know, so so it's become a very difficult game, which it always does when there's high debt. Everything just gets leveraged up and and becomes a lot more sloppy, if you like, in terms of direction and performance. The the thing that you haven't mentioned is currency. Um, obviously, yeah. as an Australian investor, with you know the Australian market only being two percent of the world market, it means that to get diversification, you need to go global. But I guess now the question is, how should Australian investors think about the currency risk? Uh, I think if we're talking about fiat currency as a whole, I think there's a clear risk there at the moment and it's going to very much depend on what central banks do from here on in. So, so far, these QE programs that Europe, Japan, the US have been doing really isn't inflationary. The money is essentially isolated with the banks and then sort of goes from the banks into the stock market. So it's inflationary, if you like, asset price inflationary in the stock market, but not necessarily inflationary out in the wider economy. If you if they then change tact and they say, okay, we're going to increase the amount of debt we monetize, we're going to move into much larger amounts of uh, helicopter money, then you could see a move from a sort of more deflationary, partly stagflationary environment into a more straight inflationary type environment. So at the moment, my view is that on the currency side, we're in a sort of a deflationary, stagflationary world while central banks act the same. If they change tax, tax then we're going into an inflationary world and then you'd need to change your your view on currencies change your view perhaps on gold as well. In terms of the Aussie, at the moment, obviously, the short term, the, the Aussie's been improving. I just, I like to go against the trend. Um, so, you know, I hear so many people talking down the US dollar. I just think that there's a lot of demand for US dollars in developing countries. Um, China needs US dollars. Um, I wouldn't mind looking 
uh, not at the moment, but I wouldn't mind stalking for a chance to go long the US dollar at some stage. I, I find it bizarre that people keep talking about the yen as a safe haven currency. I think if you look at the structure of the Japanese economy, you know, I really believe in the next mm, 30, 40 years, they're in on the in way out, the Japanese, and their um, economy is sort of the third or fourth, depending on how you measure it, largest in the world. You know, you've, you've got a really strong demographic problem there um, and, um, you know, and their population is actually going to decline up to 2050. They've got a huge debt. I think those kind of things don't make for a, a particularly strong currency over the long term or a secure currency, in my view. So, so you know, the Australian dollar is just a play on currencies, on commodities, sorry, at the end of, end of the time. But I'd rather sort of own some exposure to um, the US dollar little for a little bit of diversification. Not quite now, but maybe in a few months, um, uh, watching it anyway here on in. Mm-hmm. You mentioned gold there for for a moment. Uh, mm. You know, is, is that now should be a stable for for many people, given the amount of debt overhang that's in the world economy? When I was running the portfolio um, for the high net worth guys, I'd I'd suggest to all of them they hold about three percent in as close to physical as possible. Um, I quite like PM Gold, which is run by the Perth Mint, and it, it's guaranteed by the uh, WA government. And obviously, Western Australia is a gold-producing state's convertible um, from the ETF into physical. So um, I quite like that exposure. My trouble with gold at the moment is, honestly, I can't walk across the street without someone coming up to me and saying, you need to buy gold, you need to buy silver, you know, and I don't know whether it's the same for you or just the circles I mix in, but but it, it worries me when a trade is very crowded like that. So what am I personally doing? I own some gold. But I really, I wouldn't be rattled even if gold comes down 50%. In fact, I'd love it to come down 50%. Then I'd buy some more and hold it uh, for a potential switch from a deflationary environment to an inflationary environment in the next few years. Um, so my view is that you need to own some gold. The other reason is the leverage is massive. So if you've got fiat currency, I think it's trading between 4 and $5 trillion a day, US dollars, where... The gold estimates, um, paper gold trades about 130 billion a day and about 40 to 50 physical billion a day. So you can see effectively, short way of saying that is there's a hell of a lot of fiat currency. There's not very much gold. If there's a period where people or traders suddenly become worried about fiat currency, don't want to use the US dollar as cover, say, on a downturn in the euro or the yen, or the yuan, um, they may have to cover some of their risk in gold, in which case there's massive leverage. And just for um, that leverage play to sit at there, um, I'd uh, I'd want to hold a bit of gold. You know, it's been, it's, it's been proven for thousands of years. It'll still be around for a long time yet. Mm-hmm. Let's go last question around emerging markets because you talked a lot about sort of demographics being quite poor around the world, uh, Japan specifically, um, also the debt overhang, the you know, the place that seems to be the salvation, I guess, from a equities point of view, growth point of view is EM. 
Um, obviously, AM is not homogenous. There is some very different uh, companies that sit within that uh, that that whole grouping. Um, what's your thoughts there as as an opportunity for for growth? We'd have a small allocation into emerging markets, but to be honest with you, once you understand the structural risks in the in the developed markets and you go, well, if they have a problem in the future, emerging markets are just going to be hit harder. I think the way to look at emerging markets is, all right, that's a speculative end of your portfolio. Need some exposure, but I wouldn't go overboard there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation today, Andrew. Thank you very much for your time. No problem, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.